Good morning. Um, I'll just uh, warn all of you here who are adults that this sermon is not for you. This sermon is for the kids. And um, what, Stephen? Uh, or are you child at heart, or are you just? I thought you were yeah, okay. Anyway, this sermon's for the kids. The reason this sermon's for the kids is because today we're going to talk about Timothy. Now, Timothy is a person Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, He's referring to Timothy when he tells the Corinthians, if Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me, and I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Or, if Paul had had Darcy as an editor, if you see Timothy... Be cool, because he's a good guy. Now, Paul first encountered Timothy, who probably is the the figure who shows up with Paul most often in his letters. In all but three of his letters, Paul's either writing to Timothy, or he says, I'm writing along with Timothy, or Timothy's here. Um, Timothy was probably Paul's most most constant companion, uh, his uh, his closest lieutenant, And Paul first encountered Timothy back in Acts chapter 16. We read that when he he encountered Timothy, Timothy was was just a a teenager, really. Timothy was, you know, somewhere in in high school or what the equivalent would have been back then. He he, uh, found Timothy in Lystra, which is near Derby. Does that help you find it? No, middle of Turkey today. Um, and he, Timothy's referred to as a disciple. So we know that even though he is, he's a youth, he is somebody who's already a follower of Jesus. His mother was uh, Jewish, and she was a believer. So she was a, a person who was of Jewish background who had come to faith in Christ. And, uh, and his father, though, had been a Gentile. And the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, they spoke well of him. He had a great reputation. And Paul wanted to take him along on his journey but there was potentially a problem. See, Timothy, having been raised in a household that was mixed, Jew and Gentile, uh, Timothy did not have both of his parents on the same page when it came to what needed to be done to him on the eighth day. If he had had Jewish parents when he was eight eight days old, he would have been circumcised and given his name, but evidently his father did not want that to happen, so he was not circumcised. And Paul knew that as he went throughout the areas that God was leading him through, he was going to encounter a great many Jews. And in order to avoid difficulty, in order to avoid unnecessarily giving offense, he had Timothy circumcised. Imagine that job interview. What do I have to do to get this job? Well... (laughs) And what's really interesting about that is that this happens right after Acts 15, which is where you have the story of the Jerusalem Council, where basically Paul goes to Jerusalem and he argues over the question of whether all the Gentile believers in Christ have to be circumcised. In other words, basically the question is, do you have to, if you want to follow Jesus as Israel's Messiah, do you first have to become Jewish and then start following Israel's Messiah? And what they decide the Council of Jerusalem, this is the leaders of the early church, is no. 
that, that Christ's mercy and God's love is available to everybody, Jew and Greek, and you don't have to become Jewish so that you can worship Israel's Messiah. Everybody's welcome, which is a practical matter, means that you, we don't expect non-Jews to live like Jews in every way. Yet, here, because Paul knew that there were strategic concerns at play, he went ahead and had Timothy circumcised. And so we find later on, much later on, this is when Timothy was probably in his late 20s, Paul writing letters to him while he is at Ephesus. And these letters, uh, the first letter is First Timothy, appropriately, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. It seems this, this phrase, fight the good fight, was kind of an, an inside, I don't know, maybe even an inside joke between Paul and Timothy, but it was certainly the kind of thing that Paul, when he said it to Timothy, expected Timothy would understand what he's talking about. He tells him to fight the good fight. But the question, and I think this is especially a question for, for those of you who are at the place where Timothy was when he was in high school, most of you perhaps uncircumcised, that's not the point, that when you're, when you're looking toward life ahead of you, how do you fight the good fight? And I think there are four answers that Paul gives us from his letters to Timothy. The first is to not fight the bad ones. So to fight the good fight, for example, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, just as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. So Paul has, the very first thing he tells him after his opening, you know, hi Timothy, this is Paul, grace and peace to you, is I want you to stay there and I want you to sort out this problem. I want you to go into the ring with these folks who are teaching false doctrine. I want you to fight. This is a good fight. I want you to fight. But there are other fights that are not good fights. Other fights that are useless. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, chapter 2, he says, warn people before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and it only ruins those who listen. Later on, he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Rather, you must be kind to everybody, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, you must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. See, there are a lot of fights that are simply not worth having. Anybody remember the story of Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby? All right. So for those of you who don't know it, I think this is the most vivid demonstration of this. Unfortunately, that story comes from a Disney movie called Song of the South, 
which has a number of elements in it that nowadays we see as painfully racist, and so uh, you don't see it much. But the story of Br'er Rabbit is Br'er Rabbit is a feisty rabbit and, uh, and easily offended. And so Br'er Fox wants to catch Br'er Rabbit and make dinner out of him. So what he decides to do is he makes a tar baby. He makes, uh, shapes a baby uh, out of tar, makes a little, puts a little face on it, and then sets it up by the side of the road. So Br'er Rabbit comes hopping along, and he greets the tar baby, thinking that this is a real baby. But the tar baby doesn't respond. Br'er Rabbit greets him again. Tar baby doesn't respond because it is, after all, made out of tar. And so Br'er Rabbit gets offended. He's like, I, I says hello to you. Aren't you going to say hello to me? He gets mad. He punches the thing. But of course, it's a tar baby, so when he punches it, he gets himself stuck. And he punches him with his other foot. And he tries kicking him, and basically he's stuck to this tar baby. And the only salvation that he gets, and this is where you get another uh, commonly, uh, commonly uh, uh, quoted saying, is when the fox comes along, uh, Br'er Rabbit says, oh, whatever you do, don't throw me into the briar patch. Whatever you do. And the fox says, oh, great, I'll throw him in the briar patch. So he does, and then, of course, the briar patch is the place that Br'er Rabbit knows, knows well, and he manages to escape. But there are a lot of tar babies out there. If you have spent even five minutes out on the interwebs in any sort of comment area on anything at all, if you have ever been involved in any sort of discussion over email, if you've ever been involved in anything on, uh, if you've ever, if anybody, if you've ever seen somebody post something on Facebook that is remotely disagreeable to somebody, you see that there are tar babies galore. Don't punch them. It's stupid. It only causes trouble, right? Think, ask yourself, and I mean this, and especially as, as you guys go into places like uh, maybe, uh, I know some of you are entering new schools this year. You think about in the future entering college. You're going to encounter people and ideas, movements, practices that you've never encountered before. And, and some of them you, you may want to step up to and just think before you do it. Think before you have that argument. Think before you make that comment. What good thing is going to come of me saying this? Right? What good thing is going to come from me commenting on this post? Right? And what bad things might happen as a result of this? So fighting the good fight has a lot to do with recognizing what the bad ones are and having the wisdom to avoid them. To avoid things that, as Paul says, produce stupid quarrels. But fighting the good fight and avoiding the bad ones also means that when you fight, you fight well. You don't fight like a jerk. You don't hit below the belt. You aren't underhanded. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, he says, don't rebuke an older man harshly. And given Timothy's age, that was most of the people he was dealing with. But but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as though they were your brothers. Even though they're younger than you, treat them like you're on the same level. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Be kind. Be generous. Be gracious. Respect the people that you are in dialogue with. So don't fight bad fights 
and don't fight good ones badly. The second way we can fight the good fight is to flee the evil desires of youth, which drag you out of the ring entirely. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, he says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Well, what does he mean by all this? Well, this is quite a list, starting in verse 3. He says, if anybody teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he's conceited and he understands nothing. He's got an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, after all, and can't take anything with us. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's when Paul says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight that good fight of the faith. Those evil desires of youth are the things that, drag, that, that had the potential to drag Timothy away from doing the work that he was supposed to be doing, from fighting the fights that he was supposed to be fighting. Timothy had to avoid the temptation to fight the fights that he shouldn't have been fighting, and he had to work against the temptation to fight the right fights badly, but he also had to work against the temptation to blow off the fight and go do something else that he shouldn't have been doing. He says, run away from all this. In 2 Timothy 2.22 he says, flee those evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Lord's servant must not quarrel. seems Timothy had the temptation of maybe hopping on Facebook late at night and getting into wars. Maybe he, if he'd had Twitter, one wonders what Timothy might have done. But no, Paul says, get away from all of that. And I think the reason that Paul says, flee the evil desires of youth is, is because he has known Timothy from Timothy's youth. He's known Timothy since he was a young man. He's seen Timothy's growth and maturation in the faith. And so what he's referring to is, is Timothy, remember those, those bad habits that you broke. Remember those things that, that you used to do that you don't do anymore. Remember the the ways that you used to think that you've grown out of. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, but now that I'm a man, I put away childish things. And he's saying to Timothy, man up. Get rid of the stuff that, that fits childishness, that fits immaturity, and grow into the person you are. Sometimes people will say in a job, you should dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. In the same way, He's saying, live as the person you want to be, not as the person you are right now. Flee what's behind you. The first way we fight the good fight is to not fight the bad one. Second, to flee the evil desires of youth. The third is to remember why you're fighting in the first place. 
early in 1 Timothy, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. In chapter 4, he says, don't neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. The beginning of 2 Timothy in chapter 1, Paul says to him, that I thank God whom I serve as my fathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And I'm thinking back on your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The stained glass window that's reproduced in the front of your bulletin is the way that Timothy is sometimes portrayed, basically as being at the foot of his mother, or perhaps his grandmother, both of which raised him in the faith who taught him the Scriptures from an early age. As we'll see in a moment. That uh, Latin there is uh, from Psalm 40, uh, otherwise known as the U2 song, where he set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. And Paul keeps calling Timothy back to his experience from, from, his, from his youth, from being a very young child, of being established having his faith established on a solid foundation. And when he re keeps recalling to Timothy this gift of God which was in him through the laying on of my hands, when he keeps referring back, it, it seems like there was a moment, there was a time, there was some sort of an episode, some experience that Timothy had, that Paul was there for, that, that Paul can say, remember Timothy, this is real. This really happened to you. And, and amidst all of the things that, that go on in our lives, sometimes we can, we can forget those touchstones, those experiences we've had where we were met by God in a unique and special way, where we felt that God had given us a specific call, where He called us to, to do something in particular. And from time to time, we have to, to go back to that and say, no, that happened. That really happened. And for some people, that's going to be a time when you decided that you're going to follow Jesus. For others, it might be a baptism. It might be a time when you were able to speak something you could never have imagined yourself saying, but somehow God gave you the words. Or perhaps a time when you managed to hold your tongue or not jump up and slap somebody when only God's power could have been the thing that kept you from doing that. We don't live the kind of faith where we're supposed to be constantly depending on mountaintop experiences, where every time we come to worship on Sunday, every time we open our Bible, every time we kneel and pray, every time we come together in fellowship, we're just supposed to have some massive life-transforming moment. I mean, for one, that would just be exhausting. But, but from time to time, God does graciously give us these experiences. It's a place where we can say, yeah, I can put a stake in the ground there. I can say this was real, and I can think back to that and remember why it is. 
that I'm fighting this fight. And to fight this fight, fourth, Paul says, train yourself to be godly. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, if you point out these things, that is good wisdom to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you follow. But have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. The choice is between following after things that seem to have some value in, in a worldly sense that seem to make sense and doing the difficult work of training yourself to be a different sort of person. It says, you know, physical training is of some value, but godliness is valuable for everything, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive that we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So command and teach these things, Timothy. Don't let anybody look down on you just because you're young. But rather, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching, and don't neglect that gift which is in you by laying on, by a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in all of these things. Give yourself fully to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In order to fight well, you need to train to fight. Paul uses this boxing metaphor more than once in his, in his letters. You, you have to, to, to develop endurance. You have to develop strength. You have to develop quickness. None of that comes quickly or easily unless, of course, you're watching a boxing movie in which it happens as sort of a montage over the course of a few minutes with some inspiring song playing over it. No, it's, it's a long and difficult process. But Paul says, I want you to train yourself so that you can be effective as you fight. He says in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, he says that I want you to continue in what you've learned and what you've been convinced of. He, Paul doesn't say, I want you to take what you've learned and then I want you to progress beyond that. I want you to transcend that. I want you to go on to new and more wonderful things. No, he says, what you have, what you've learned, what you've been established in is solid. It's right. Grow in that. Develop into that. Don't go making stuff up. Because you know those from whom you learned it. Remember, Timothy, you know the kind of people who taught this to you. How from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness in order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So train yourself to be godly. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. How do we do that? We avoid the bad fights and we don't fight good ones badly. We flee the desires, evil desires of youth 
and grow into the people that God's making us. We remember why we're fighting. And we recall those times that God has clearly been present to us. And we train ourselves to be godly so that we can fight well. And then we may one day be able to say with Paul, by God's grace, and don't, please don't come away from this hearing that this is all about you trying really hard to do stuff. This is about the power of God working within us. This is about us placing ourselves in a, in a, in a position to benefit from the work of His grace in us. Just like when somebody trains, they, they, the, the work they do is to shred a muscle so that the muscle will regrow. You don't have to put any effort into regrowing the muscle. You just have to put effort in, in, into busting it up so that it will. Paul says in 2 Timothy at the end, a letter he likely is writing to Timothy shortly before his own execution. He says, you know, Timothy, sitting in this prison cell in Rome, I feel like I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and that the time has come for my departure. I fought the fight. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. This little button was given to me by my, by my Greek professor at the end of our, our year of, uh, of learning Greek. It says, Ton kalon agona egonismai, which is, I have fought the good fight. And the cool part was, at that moment when we got it, we could read it right away. Ton kalon agona egonismai, I have fought the good fight. And yeah, it kind of felt like a pretty difficult... Uh, course of study but Paul's writing this at the end of a hard life he's writing this that after probably 60 some years the last half of which have involved him getting beaten up a lot have involved him getting criticized left right and center has have involved him being disappointed by people that he thought he could trust involved people letting him down people slandering him and here involves his unjust prosecution despite his Roman citizenship for something that had no business being dealt with as a civil matter. But he can say, you know what? I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would be people who fight the good fight who avoid the bad ones, who fight the good ones well. Pray that we would be people who flee that which is not of you, that which is of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Give us the grace to flee those evil desires of youth, to remember those times that you have met us in a special way. And all along to train ourselves to be godly. We pray that we would be people who can say with Paul that we have fought the good fight. That we finished the race knowing that there is in store for us a crown of righteousness. Not because of what we have done. Not because we've worked hard. Not because we have impressed you. But simply because of your grace poured out to us lavishly 
through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.